Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 9, The Tyrant of Athens, Book 1, Chapters 56 to 64. Last time on the podcast, we learned of Croesus's plan to test various oracles in order to discover which one could actually foretell the future. Once he determined that the oracle at Delphi was the real deal, the king asked what he should do about the Persians, who were threatening his kingdom from the east. The oracle told him that if he took up arms against the Persians, he would destroy a mighty empire, and that he should look for allies. Croesus, therefore, turned to Greece to find someone to stand with him against the Persian threat. In today's episode, we pick up where we left off, with Croesus on the hunt for allies. Since he looks towards Greece, today we'll be focusing mainly on how Herodotus depicts the history of Athens just before the time of our narrative. As Croesus looked into the matter, he soon learned that there were two major powers in Greece, Athens and Sparta. We have, in fact, reached a milestone, since it's here that these two names appear for the first time in our narrative. As these two city-states will, um, spoiler alert, play highly significant roles in the war against the Persians, Herodotus takes this opportunity to present a bit of background on these two peoples. This episode, then, is something of a two-parter. This week, we'll discuss Athens, and next week, we'll move on to what Herodotus says about Sparta. Our text begins with a notoriously difficult passage, in which Herodotus probes the ethnic differences between the Athenians and the Spartans. It may come as something of a surprise to the modern reader, who might be used to thinking of Greeks as simply Greeks that in antiquity, it was understood that there were major ethnic differences between various groups of Greek-speaking peoples, which were reflected in differences in dialect, cultural practice, and even temperament. Herodotus briefly probes the historical and linguistic differences between the Athenians, of the Ionian ethnic group, and the Spartans, of the Doric ethnic group, before turning his attention fully to the people of Attica, the peninsula in the east of Greece whose major city is Athens. Attica is often referred to synonymously with Athens, since the city historically controlled the entire peninsula. At the time of our narrative, which is approximately 548 BCE, the people of Attica were, as Herodotus puts it, quote, oppressed and kept in divided factions, end quote, by their ruler, Pisistratus, the tyrant of Athens. More on that loaded word tyrant later. In his typical fashion, Herodotus takes us backward in time yet again to explore who Pisistratus was and how he came to power. The tyrant's father was a man named Hippocrates, who was a simple private citizen. But Herodotus relates how the fate of his son was foretold by a portent before Pisistratus's birth. When Hippocrates was at Olympia to see the Olympic Games, he offered a sacrifice. Suddenly, the bronze vessels containing the sacrificial meat, even though they were nowhere near a fire, began to simmer and bubble so furiously that they boiled over. 
A wise Spartan named Chilon, who witnessed this marvel, gave his interpretation to Hippocrates, warning him not to bear any children. He cautioned Hippocrates not to marry any woman who could give him a child, and, if he was already married, he should send his wife away, and if he already had a son, he should disown him. However, Hippocrates thought nothing of this advice, and, as heralded by this eerie omen, Pisistratus was born. Herodotus then unfolds how Pisistratus, upon reaching adulthood, took power in Athens, not once, not twice, but three times. When the future tyrant was a young man, there was great discord between three Athenian factions, the Athenians living near the coast, led by a man named Megacles, those living on the plain, led by Lycurgus, and those living in the hills. Seizing upon this division as a path to power, Pisistratus pretended to champion the cause of this last group, the hill people. He then used a trick to secure power. He drove his mule cart into the marketplace, covered with wounds, wounds that he himself had inflicted, claiming that he had been set upon by enemies from the other factions as he was innocently driving through the countryside, and that he had barely managed to escape with his life. His supporters swallowed the story, and, for his own protection, assigned Pisistratus a group of bodyguards, whose signature was the wooden club they carried, rather than the traditional spear. With this loyal body of men at his command, Pisistratus staged a coup. He captured the Acropolis, the religious center of the city, and thereby all of Athens. However, Herodotus notes, once in power, Pisistratus didn't change any of the existing laws, but governed, quote, justly and well under its established constitution. Now, the Athenians may have been fractious and quarrelsome, but there's nothing that brings enemies together more quickly than someone else being in power. Megacles and Lycurgus put aside their differences and worked together to oust Pisistratus. They soon succeeded in their effort, but it didn't take long for the two factions to begin to feud once more. Clearly not a big fan of consistency, Megacles decided on a power play. He contacted Pisistratus in exile, offering him his daughter's hand in marriage and command over Athens in exchange for help defeating Lycurgus. Once this was agreed upon, the two men came up with a plan to restore Pisistratus to power, a plan that, Herodotus admits, was extremely silly, all the more notably so because the Athenians were supposed to be a clever folk. The plan was this. In a village outside the city, they found a woman named Phae, exceptional for her beauty as well as for her height, being nearly six foot four. Megacles and Pisistratus decked her out in a full suit of armor, put her in a chariot, and drove her towards Athens. She was preceded by heralds, who proclaimed, Athenians, welcome back Pisistratus with open arms. Athena herself honors him above all men and is bringing him back to her own Acropolis. The people of the city, it seems, truly believed that this woman, striking though she may have been, was Athena herself, and so rejoiced in Pisistratus's return to power, which was clearly 
endorsed by divine will. Back in power with the help of Megacles, Pisistratus followed through on his part of the bargain and married the other man's daughter. But there was a wrinkle. Pisistratus already had two sons, Hippias and Hipparchus, and the family of Megacles, called the Alcmeonids, was believed to be under a terrible curse. The tyrant, therefore, didn't want to produce any ill-fated children with this new wife, and so he slept with her unusually. Herodotus literally says that he had intercourse with her, quote, not according to custom. In other words, in a way that would not produce children. Uh, as this is a family podcast, you can take that phrase as you will. In any case, when the news of the situation made it back to Megacles, he was outraged. So outraged, in fact, that he made peace with his frenemy Lycurgus. When Pisistratus found this out, he fled Attica to the town of Eretria, some 60 miles away from Athens on the island of Euboea, to plot a return with his sons. For his third attempt at seizing Athens, Pisistratus decided to skip the clever scheming and try something more direct, an all-out military assault. He called in all the favors he could, acquiring cash and mercenaries from a number of other cities, most notably Thebes and Argos, who were, historically, no great friends of Athens. A man by the name of Ligdemus, from the island of Naxos, was so eager to join Pisistratus's cause that he supplied even more materiel and men. Nor was this a quick operation. Ten years after fleeing Athens, Pisistratus, Hippias, and Hipparchus returned, with a large, powerful, and well-provisioned army. Advancing toward the city, the first place they took was Marathon, which is located on the coast of Attica, facing Euboea. There, supporters of the tyrant's cause flocked to him, men who, as Herodotus puts it, quote, found more pleasure in one-man rule than in freedom, end quote, swelling his ranks even further. During his decade-long absence, the Athenians seemed to have forgotten Pisistratus entirely, taking no notice of him even when he was amassing resources. But when they heard that he was marching on the city, they quickly dispatched an army. The Athenian and Pisistratian forces came together near a sanctuary of Athena at a place called Pallini. For a map of these maneuvers, check out the episode page on the podcast website, HerodotusPodcast.com. But before the battle could begin, a seer by the name of Amphilitus delivered a prophecy to Pisistratus. The net is cast, the mesh has been spread, and the tuna will dart in the moonlight. Pisistratus immediately grasped the message's meaning and led his army out against the Athenians. His boldness paid off. He quite literally caught his enemy sleeping. The Athenian army was entirely unprepared, since, after their morning meal, some of the soldiers were idly playing dice, while others were snoozing. The tyrant's attack set them to flight, and Pisistratus thought up a stratagem to stop the enemy from regrouping. He and his sons rode on ahead in front of his troops, overtaking the fleeing soldiers, 
and told them that they had nothing to worry about if they simply returned home in peace. Many of the Athenian soldiers took him up on his offer, and so, facing minimal resistance, Pisistratus came to rule over Athens for a third time. The tyrant learned from his mistakes. His rule was now insured by a large troop of mercenary bodyguards, paid for by the revenue he received from local taxes, as well as by the gold of a mine that he controlled in northern Greece. He punished the enemy soldiers who hadn't returned home, but who had rather stood their ground after the fighting was effectively over. Their children were taken as hostages and sent off to the island of Naxos, which Ligdemus was occupying in Pisistratus's name. And yet, Herodotus concludes his account of the tyrant on a positive note. Pisistratus did not neglect his religious duties. In accordance with a prophecy he received, Pisistratus purified the island of Delos, a land sacred to Apollo, by removing the corpses that were polluting it. And so the recap of Athenian history catches up with the narrative, with Pisistratus and his sons ruling over Athens and the Alcmaeonids in exile. Let's begin the discussion of today's text by addressing the fraught word that comes up again and again in relation to Pisistratus. Tyrant. Ask a person today to define tyrant, and, perhaps after a brief rant about their least favorite politician, they'd probably say something like, a bad and immoral ruler. However, the ancient Greek word tyrannos, from which the English word tyrant is derived, isn't quite as straightforward. While it can definitely have the modern sense of evil ruler, it was also, at times, used more or less as a synonym for monarch. This slipperiness is a result, as we'll see, of the word's history. Turanos first appeared in the Greek language in the 7th century BCE and, in a handy connection to our subject matter, appears to have been borrowed from the Lydian language. And in fact, the first ruler to be described as a Turanos was our old friend Gyges. Gyges appears in a poem by the Greek poet Archilochus, a contemporary of the Lydian king, who calls him Polukrusos, gold-rich. Archilochus characterizes Gyges' great works and accomplishments as equal to those of the gods. And yet, in the same line, he calls the king's rule a tyranny. But in doing so, Archilochus isn't calling him a despot. Rather, he uses the term to mean powerful monarchy. And it was in this way that tyrant was first used in Greek, as a colorful descriptor rather than as an insult. But history began to catch up with the word tyrannos, giving it new and not entirely positive associations. In the 600s and 500s BCE, that is, the period in which our narrative spends the majority of its time, a new kind of ruler started to come to power across the Greek world. These rulers were often called tyrannoi, tyrants, and what distinguished them as new was that they were not hereditary kings wielding traditional royal power. Rather, they were usurpers, often members of the aristocratic class whose acquisition of wealth had given them political influence, and who ruled cities without specified limits to their power. By calling these rulers tyrants, 
scholars distinguish them from the kings who came before and from the more popular and inclusive governments that would come after. It's for this reason that this era, the archaic period of Greek history, is sometimes referred to as the Age of Tyrants. A very brief aside, this picture is, in the end, a simplification. If we survey the rulers who are called tyrants, it's clear that this category consists of a variety of forms of government. Still, the idea of the archaic period as the Age of Tyrants has been around for a very long time and is a well-established frame in which to view this era of Greek history. Uh, sorry, I wrote my dissertation on this. Of course, one-man rule, and they were all men, is rarely a pleasant experience for most of those being ruled. After all, the sort of person who seizes power and rules unilaterally most likely isn't going to be the nicest person in the world, right? We can, in fact, draw another connection between the idea of Greek tyranny and our old friend Gyges. Back in episode 4, I mentioned Plato's allegory of the Ring of Gyges, a magical ring that turns its wearer invisible. Plato used the story to argue that even a kind and decent human being who is given access to unchecked power will succumb to the temptation to abuse it. Tyranny ended up with a similar reputation. After most of the tyrants had been overthrown and replaced by constitutional governments of one sort or another, the unchecked authority of tyranny came to be associated with its worst abuses. Consider how the philosopher Aristotle, writing much later than the time period we're dealing with now, discusses tyranny in his treatise on politics. He defines tyranny as, quote, the exercise of unrestrained power over all classes of citizens alike for the ruler's own benefit and not the benefit of those being ruled. Therefore, such power is held against the will of its subjects, as no free person endures such a rule. End quote. Now, how does Herodotus feel about tyranny? The answer is more nuanced than you might at first assume. Let's begin to get at an answer by looking at how the historian has depicted tyrants so far. Sharp-eared listeners will recall that we've heard mention of tyrants before now, both as rulers of Corinth. Kypsilis was mentioned briefly in episode 4, and Periander put in a couple appearances in episode 5. They will reappear at greater length much later in the narrative, but let's think back for a moment on how Herodotus has portrayed Periander. Through his connections at Delphi, Periander gave a helpful heads-up to Thrasybulus, the ruler of Miletus, in his dealings with the Lydian king Aliates, and later served as a harsh but fair ruler who punished the piratical Corinthian sailors who tried to kill the singer Arion. That's not exactly a condemnation of tyranny, is it? Again, we'll get a more nuanced picture of him in the future, but in these specific instances, Periander comes across as a wise and judicious ruler, more, perhaps, an archetype out of folklore than a real political figure. So it seems reasonable to make a distinction between Herodotus's portrayal of tyranny in general and his portrayal of individual tyrants, what classicist Carolyn DeWald has called the difference between the form and the content of the stories about tyranny in the histories. In other words, Herodotus depicts tyranny and tyrannical characteristics negatively, especially when it comes to non-Greek rulers, as we will see. But his portraits of individual Greek tyrants are not always wholly unsympathetic. 
While he does not hesitate to show the negative sides of their rule, he will also point out the positives. With this in mind, let's now turn to Herodotus' depiction of Pisistratus. Does the historian paint a positive or a negative picture of him? Let's begin with the circumstances surrounding the tyrant's birth. Pots that suddenly boil over without any fire beneath them. Spooky. This kind of supernatural occurrence is a teros, the Greek word for a portent or a marvel, the kind of thing that can occur to mark some significant event, like the birth of an important person. In fact, as we encounter other tyrants in the text, we will see that Herodotus really likes to associate their birth with some miraculous event, something, in the original sense of the word, ominous. The omen of the boiling pots may mark Pisistratus as important, but it doesn't necessarily suggest that he is either good or bad. There is, I think, a glimmer of admiration in Herodotus's recounting of the tyrant's repeated seizures of power. In all three attempts, Pisistratus relies more on his wits than on force. And it's interesting that Herodotus chides the supposedly brainy Athenians for falling for the, hey, look, it's Athena, ploy. Even as Pisistratus employs an outright show of force, during the military confrontation that brings him to power for the third and final time, it's the tyrant's intelligence that proves crucial to his success. More on that in just a moment. The ambiguity of Herodotus's portrait of Pisistratus is visible in how the historian balances clearly anti-tyrannical rhetoric, for example, starting this section characterizing the Athenians as being, quote, oppressed and kept in divided factions by tyranny, end quote. And yet we hear that Pisistratus, once in power, didn't change any of the pre-existing laws and govern the city, quote, justly and well. The section on the tyrant even concludes with the pious religious acts that he carried out during his rule. As ever, Herodotus invites us to compare and contrast, to read figures and events against one another. Pisistratus makes an interesting contrast with Croesus. The tyrant is resourceful, charismatic, and clever. Consider how he handles things when a prophecy is thrown his way. Remember, he was on the verge of attacking the Athenians when he received a prophecy from Amphilitus, which was, The net is cast, the mesh has been spread, and the tuna will dart in the moonlight. Unlike some of the Delphic prophecies we explored in the last episode, the literal meaning of these words is fairly clear, although their metaphorical meaning is still elusive. But that doesn't pose a problem for Pisistratus. He seizes the moment and scores a decisive victory. This is because he, unlike a certain Lydian king we could mention, knows how to successfully interpret a prophecy. You'll notice that Herodotus doesn't even provide an explanation for these lines, although I think it's because the meaning would have been fairly obvious to a contemporary reader. The tuna, in Greek actually a type of tuna called a tunny, was regarded by the Greeks as a notoriously stupid fish, one that was painfully easy to catch in great numbers. Amphilitus was, then, giving a message of encouragement. Go for it. Cast your net and watch your prey swim right into it. The ease with which the tyrant grasps the meaning of this prophecy could hardly be more different from the misinterpretations that we have seen Croesus repeatedly put forward when given even slightly ambiguous messages. Pisistratus 
is an intelligent and dynamic ruler, and appears here as far more active than the essentially reactive King Croesus, who, I think it's fair to say, has seemed perpetually one step behind. Before I go, a few words of housekeeping. This episode took me longer than I'd hoped. As a teacher, the summer represents an amazing opportunity to get stuff done. Unfortunately, it's also the only time to get the things done that I've been putting off for the entire school year. My goal for the podcast is to upload at least one episode per month. What would make that goal easier to reach is feedback from you. I would love to get some questions from you in the hopes of doing a question-and-answer episode in the near future, and I'd be thrilled to hear any comments you might have. You can reach me at HerodotusPodcast at gmail.com. I would also be immensely appreciative of any five-star reviews you could leave on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, or the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow this podcast on social media, on Instagram, at Herodotus Podcast, on Twitter, at Herodcast, H-E-R-O-D-C-A-S-T, and look on Facebook for the Herodotus Podcast. And any support you could offer on Patreon would go a long, long way to helping me continue to make this podcast. To do so, please go to patreon.com slash Herodotus Podcast. And on that note, a huge heap of Herodotian thanks to listener K.O. for being the very first patron. Next time on the podcast, Herodotus directs his narrative towards Sparta, the second of the Greek city-states that Croesus considers as a potential ally, and the contrast with Athens couldn't be starker. Which city will Croesus pick to aid him in his battle against the Persians? Find out next time on the Herodotus Podcast.